This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. This is Jesid Ortega, and this is another episode of Chasing Encounters, facing one more cold day today here in Canada and waiting for the snow soon to come. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us Dr. Ujuania, in, she's an assistant professor of second language learning in the curriculum and instruction department at the Pennsylvania State University. So since this podcast is about languages, cultures, and identities, and how all of these converge in research and education, typically in, in these conversations that, that we have with our guests, is, is we start with a very informal conversation about talking about who they are, where they're coming from, etc. For example, I was born in Colombia, therefore my parents were born in Colombia, then I moved to Chicago and lived for 10 years, and now I'm a Canadian citizen, therefore I speak English with a Latino accent. But because this podcast is not about me, uh, we want others, our audience to know a little bit more about you, so maybe perhaps we're going to start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um... Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me to have this conversation. And I look forward to the exchange. Um, I, my name is Uju Anya, and uh, I was born in Nigeria, um, in Enugu, Nigeria. And uh, Nigeria has been in the news uh, lately uh, because of the, the protests and uprisings that are happening. Mm. Uh, so I guess people um, you know, would be more aware now uh, Uh, especially as related to the global fight against police brutality right. and abuse um, of the oppressors. Um, so I was born in Nigeria. My father uh, was Nigerian and uh, my mother from Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, and the two of them met in England and uh, they were both uh, colonial uh, children and sort of from their mm -hmm. home country sent to you know, the colonial superpower to, to get educated. And it was uh, in uh, when my dad was in law school and my mom in uh, nursing school that they both met, got married in England and then moved back to uh, my dad's home of Nigeria to uh, raise a family. Uh, so uh, the marriage, unfortunately, uh, didn't work after lasting quite a bit of time, uh, about 25 years, and my mom left and took her youngest uh, of five children, her two youngest, my brother and I. And that's how I ended up in the United States at 10 years old, where um, I was raised and educated and um, where I consider my home. So uh, if you were to ask me how I identify in terms of, you know, citizenship or in terms of um, cultural identification primarily or Uh, where my heart lies, uh, I would say that I'm uh, most of anything, the many things I am, I am mostly American um, or USian because America is a pretty large place. <laughs> And there are many exactly. different Americas. You know? So um, uh, I'm what they consider, I guess, generation 1.5, right? Or not uh, first generation. And we're not born here either, came pretty young. So uh, we're not first or second, we're in the middle. Uh, so yeah. Nice, nice. That's always good to, to know about that. I'm so glad that you started this Uh, this little joke about the America or Americas and EU Asians. Now, <laughs> I have heard a lot of people already starting to introduce the, the new term EU Asian. And it's, it's a long battle because when I lived in Chicago for a long time, my job was to, to teach um, primary school children, you know, Spanish when I lived there, right? And then when I, when I introduced myself and I say, hey, hello, my name is Jacid, I'm from Colombia. Colombia is in South America. Right. And then some children will raise their hand and say, oh, so you're from Texas. And I was like, what do you mean, Texas? No, no. Well, Texas in the South America, right in the South America. I was like, <laughs> so then I had to come with a map, a global map and explain all of these ideas. This America is the continent. And then here, this portion is the United States of America. So I am south of the border. <laughs> and then, oh, so you're Mexican. 
And I am <laughs> like, oh, come on, seriously. And then I have, again, to go back another 20 minutes, another tirade about explaining how, or not because I speak Spanish, I am Mexican, I have to explain all of these countries in South America and Latin America, they speak Spanish, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, that being said, I also understand that you speak Spanish and other languages. And let us know about what is your repertoire, what is your linguistic repertoire, and where did you get them all of these languages? Uh, well, I... <laughs> I was, you know, born in uh, a multilingual, multinational family, um, and also uh, Nigeria uh, as a whole is a very population dense place and um, uh, uh, a place that is characterized by super diversity. So we have over like I don't know 522 different languages, wow. um, and it, you know we. And it also these battles between what's a named language and what's a dialect and what's a variety, et cetera. Um, however, uh, even in my particular home, there were many uh, different languages uh, going around uh, okay. because we engage with people of different ethnicities. And even uh, in the Englishes that we spoke, we spoke different varieties um, of English. Um, so I was born in uh, a territory where the uh, primary ethnicity is Igbo and the people there speak Igbo. Um, so that was, and of course my father's family and people around me spoke Igbo. So my very first words were in Igbo and very, you know, immediately followed by English, you know, because of my mother <laughs> and also, yeah. <laughs> So I was right from, you know, at 18 months when I started to talk, I was already um, functioning in two named languages. Um, so there's Igbo, there's English. And um, I, I have, you know, very, uh, when we came to the United States, I, I became more familiar with you know, more sort of distant aspects of my family lineage um, that uh, related to Venezuela, which is extremely mm -hmm. close to uh, Trinidad, where my mom is from. So, you right. know, in a very distant way, um, mm -hmm. there are some, you know, uh, Latin Americans or Spanish speakers uh, in my family. Uh, however, my primary relation with the Latin uh, languages have been through formal instruction and um, neighborhoods where I lived and people right. who I interacted with. So that is how I, I primarily picked up Spanish um, was uh, in those you know, social interactions in the neighborhoods. And of course it was formalized in classes uh, at school. And uh, I was, because I'm you know, from a very you know, linguistically diverse background and very familiar with, and I already have this natural love for languages, I knew that's what I wanted to study in school. So I went to school you know, to become a language major uh, and eventually a language teacher. And mm -hmm. in that process, mm -hmm. uh, being in the Spanish department, you know, I was also in communication with other Latin languages. I picked up Italian and I fell in love with Portuguese. Um, so, <laughs> and that was when I first had my encounters with the Portuguese language. I was able to travel um, and visit Brazil and, be, you know, began a lifelong relationship um, with Portuguese while also, you know, maintaining Spanish, especially uh, those of us who teach world languages that you should know, you know, in the, yep. you worked in the United States doing that, you know, the, mm -hmm. the steady money is Spanish. Of course, <laughs> and, of course. and then you have the less commonly taught, you know, languages um, that you can also sort of play with on the side. But if you mm -hmm. want to eat, you're going to teach Spanish. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, um, that was always sort of my trajectory in language teaching. And eventually, um, I met and fell in love uh, with uh, the man who eventually became my husband and father of my children. Uh, we are no longer married, uh, but he still remains the father of my children. And during the time that we were married, um, uh, I learned Russian because mm -hmm. uh, he was Russian and um, it was urgent for me to wow. communicate in Russian in my house, especially when I started to have children and they started to communicate with their father in Russian. And it's a lot of power to lose in your own house, uh, not speaking the language that uh, the other parent and spouse speaks with the children. So uh, 
that would be the totality of the six languages that I, I speak. And of course, to varying levels of expertise, because right. as you know, yes. multilinguals yes. aren't, you know, a bunch of monolinguals, <laughs> you know, inside one person, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you are, I think you are a vivid example of what we call here in Canada, a uh, plurilingual person, you know, in Canada, yeah. we manage a lot of the, these conceptualizations of plurilingualism, a plurilingual person, a person who has this knowledge of a number of languages with different types of um, fluidity and why not, right? Like, like you are a good example and not you, but many people in the States and even in Canada as well, we are a good example of that. And yet I feel like sometimes that in the world of bilingual education here in Canada is English and French. When we have here outdoor, you know, and lots of people speaking numerous languages and in the United States is English and Spanish. And sometimes we forget that there are people like yourself with all of this vast knowledge of languages. And then we sometimes, mm -hmm. I feel like we forget the beauty of all of those languages that are around, especially in the schools. Sure. And it's something that's a, a reality and, and not an especially exceptional one for most Africans, right? right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know um, many Africans who aren't at least at the very basic level conversant in two or three languages, just because that, that's just, you know, uh, the, the nature of the diverse societies that we come from. Um, so this notion of you just kind of function in just one language, um, that that's monolingualism is, is not really that heard of <laughs> outside of places that have the, the power to be monolingual, right? Because that means that the world is uh, accommodating your linguistic needs more than you do theirs. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I have varying degrees of expertise in language. I have my working languages, the strong nice. ones, that would be English, Portuguese, and Spanish. Um, and then I have my heritage one, Igbo, and, and which I never learned to read or write. So it's generally going to be an oral expression language for me. Um, and then I have, you know, Russian and Italian, which varies uh, in strength, depending on how actively um, and deeply I'm engaging in both. And then that takes me to my next question, because the next question is a question that I wanted to discuss with you. And the question is based on something that caught my attention in a tweet that you did uh, uh, or posted uh, last week, I guess. And it was related to or in response to Dr. Jose Medina, like who was sort of uh, talking about if we language speakers are linguistically oppressing other similar um, speakers of the same language or we are culturally sustaining them. And he was arguing how in the United States, and I've seen it somewhere else as well, you know, this idea of policing the language, especially in Spanish, who are saying, you, don't, you should not say this, you should say that. And this is not only happening there, you know, on social media as well, people correcting the way you are uh, speaking or not. And it got me thinking, you know, what, what Dr. Jose at that moment was saying was, was very clear about what is what we're trying to do here? Are we actually... Uh, policing the languages or are we trying to just acknowledge that there is a living culture living among us and we should just help out everybody to to celebrate this culture and affirm those uh, Latinx, Chicano, you name it. And then your response, I was thinking like, you were saying like something like trying, you were trying to publish an article that was rejected for multiple times, you know, trying to make the same argument because language department consumed by elitist monolingual ideologies, I'm sort of quoting here, of linguistic purism are harming students by marginalizing ones who speak what they consider contaminated language. So I, I agree 100% what you say with the idea of, of, of um, linguistic purism. And I'm saying this because when I live in Chicago, I was the, 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 the purist because I don't know if you know, or many of our audience know or have this idea that Colombians have the best Spanish in Latin America. This was this idea. That's why I was hired, by the way, because Colombians, especially people from Bogota, Colombia, we are supposed to have the most neutral accent compared to Mexicans, okay, Ecuadorian, Peruvians, Argentinians, etc. Right. And then I was hired because of that. So in a sense, I like I was hired as the police of language. 
And I remember telling my fellow teachers from Mexico and Ecuador, I'm going to say, it's not platano, it's, it's, it's banano. It's not frutilla, it's fresa. It's not ventoso, it's aceviento. It's not troca, it's camión. And then the Mexicans would say, camión is a bus. And then we, you know, <laughs> and then we keep going on and on and on. And I ended up just always correcting. No, it's not, what is it? It's not watcha, it's mira. Exactly. <laughs> And so on. And then I, I assume you have more examples like this, but I'm going to uh, open the space for you to sort of problematize this assumption and these things that are happening right now as we speak in the United States, the idea of linguistic purism. And then have we become these police? Yeah. Um, the first thing that we have to understand about language is when we talk about language, we rarely are talking about language. We're usually talking about people because you can't separate language from the people who are languaging, right? So when we talk about who's speaking good language versus bad language, uh, the people who we consider the speakers of the bad language or what we consider bad language is usually attached to who we consider as less than in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Because everybody has an accent and everybody has a variety, right? Mm -hmm. So what's established as a standard or the good language mm -hmm. is somebody's language. And that somebody mm -hmm. tends to be the elite somebody, right? Or, you know, the, the, the privileged somebody or the better somebody mm -hmm. whose languaging practices are considered uh, the better way to speak and to be because we usually um, study them and their practices. We focus everything around them. What's considered like professional language is, you know, how they language. What's considered high art and literature especially, right, is their literary production, which is, you know, where we get the models for what's the high language and the good language. Um, so when you were sent to police language, you were sent, you know, or you were established as the arbiter of what is good language versus bad language. And you were sent to enforce borders and boundaries, right, between who is doing well in language and who isn't. And those borders and boundaries are governed by ideologies, right? And these ideologies have a lot to do with how we look at people who speak, right? Whether, you know, and how how we judge them in how they speak. Um, so it, when we make these differentiations, right, we cannot ignore the fact that they cut across very clear social class lines. They cut across very clear racial lines, right? Um, because, you know, we human beings are racialized, right? And language is embodied, right? Um, so when we say who's speaking the best Spanish, uh, well, Castellano is usually the best Spanish. So even better than the Colombian version, yeah, yeah. Uh, many would argue that the European version is uh, the, the tippity top, right? And that has to do with, you know, who's considered the owners of the language and who's considered, you know, the, the standard bearers, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you compare to who, whose Spanish is usually considered the not so great Spanish, right, right. right? It's typically, you know, the the Caribbean speakers, not all mm -hmm. Caribbean speakers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the Caribbean speakers that are usually the most Africanized uh, speakers, right? So, you know, the languaging practices, especially in Spanish, that are looked down upon. Now, this is within those who are speaking, let's say, exclusively Spanish. We haven't even gotten to those who are speaking what's considered um Con mixed, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, even those who are dealing with exclusively the name languages, we have our hierarchies. Right. And, uh, you know, the people who do the LR confusions, you know, and, and uh, the, uh, so we, we usually know who, who are the ones that we don't think are doing that great. So when you look at who are the standard bearers, uh, and let's, you know, bring it to the United States, uh, world language department, so let's say Spanish department, right. where I'm you know, most familiar with, right, you see very clear hierarchies of speakers in those Spanish departments, right? And the ones who are 
the model native speakers, right, are usually the internationals and usually the, the monolingual international, right? Monolingual in the sense that not only do they speak Spanish, but Spanish is the language that they speak and they speak it in a way that is perceived that they don't speak other languages besides Spanish, right? And it's not just these you know, monolingual internationals, it's also an elite among them as well. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the tippy tippy top hierarchy among who's doing Spanish really well in these you know, language departments that are, are arbiters of good language and bad language, especially mm-hmm. in the Spanish world, you're yeah. gonna see that the Europeans, the Argentinians, the you know, Colombians, et cetera, usually elite, usually white, are the ones who are considered the good language doers, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you would then go down the hierarchy and at the bottom of this hierarchy would usually be working class U.S. Latinx, right? And those are the ones considered even lower than, let's say, the, you know, white Americans or, you know, the Anglos who learn Spanish. So even considered not doing as well, right? And not even like uh, able to bear the standard of, you know, native speakers are the working class U.S. Latinos, right, that that come and are uh, labeled uh, impure in the way that they talk mm-hmm. because they say things like wacha or troca or, or they, you know, they, um, they was instead of, you know, tu or mm-hmm. they, you know, they do all kinds of things um, yeah. that are, are not particularly uh, savory. And what they're doing, you know, as you saw in that video, uh, is speaking their language, right? Mm-hmm. They come with very strong language cultures, and but those particular cultures are not considered what's good and what's high. And that's directly related to the fact that they themselves are not as social beings, right? Considered good and high. And they are stigmatized, right, in terms of social class positioning, you know, and in in many regards, in terms of their racialized beings as well, right? And this comes part and parcel, you know, with the stigma that their language holds. Uh, So, you know, in in a nutshell, that's really what's happening, right? When we're policing language, uh, we're saying good and bad, and good aligns with who is in our society good, right? And uh, those who are doing language badly usually aligns with those who we view as less than in the hierarchies of our society. Right, so it seems, it seems that we are still playing under the ideology of, of binary ideology, good and bad, up and down, elite versus not elite, you know, the ha- we, we, we know that we have a history of colonization that, that has put us who are at the top and who are at the bottom. So with this history of hierarchization, unfortunately, as you said, the lower class are the ones who are always at the bottom. Now, one of the good things that, that we have sort of been working here in Canada for a while is the idea of something that people have been trying to theorize and also put into practice here is the idea of a plurilingual education or plurilingualism, which does not necessarily see these as two strict, you know, rigid structures of by, but pluri, meaning like this is an, an ecosystem that we say, like acts as a symbiosis of many languages interacting from each other, right? And then I believe that because we are still uh, under that platform of, of hierarchies, we'll still see who gets to say what and who gets to say this or that. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, the Latinx working class are still at the bottom, right? So for me, I see that the, the languages that we speak, that you speak, that I speak, the working class, the uh, African-American people, vernacular, you name it, all of these are languages and these are cultures, right? And unfortunately, these are languages and cultures that the other, the elites are not expecting to hear because they are still in their paradigms of hierarchies, right? And then the question, one of the many questions 
that I have asked, what would be the solution then from both, uh, or, or if there is a solution from the theoretical point of view and from the practical pedagogical point of view to dismantle these hierarchies? Because a lot of teachers have come to me and say, what are we teachers supposed to do? Are we supposed to just allow all the students to do and say whatever they want, watch a MOPA, and then it's fine? And then, and then we ju they just go, okay, you know, it not even count whether you said in the past or in the present, whether you use the verb in the current tense. Are we supposed to do this and just liberate them and do whatever? Or should we give them some boundaries, some leeway? Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on this idea? <laughs> it's always the slippery slope argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, well, if you let them say watcha, then they will never, you know, conjugate a verb. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, they do it. The, they do it. Yo watcheo, tu watcheas, el watchea. They do exactly, it. Exactly. They right? do so, it. So, you know, the slippery slope is a really <laughs> um, convenient way to, to put restrictions and to actually maintain the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you say, well, if we give an inch, they're going to take a whole mile and they're going to uh, ignore the very foundation of language, which is, you know, meaning making, and then stop distinguishing between present and past and future times, as if you can do that and right. still effectively communicate, right? right? right. So, right. but it's really easy to say, well, if we give a little bit too much, then they're going to abandon everything, uh, which then means, okay, no problem. Let's just hold everything as we are right now. <laughs> and, and then th that means, you know, it, it's really a concern troll problem, right? You know, what a concern troll is, is, you know, they're really trolling and they really, um, don't agree with any proposition to change anything, mm -hmm. right? Or, mm -hmm. or to actually, they don't even agree in the argument that you're having. However, they want to introduce a concern that they may have of a potential for a problem. And that particular concern just happens to destroy everything and bring it all down and make, you know, silence you. Uh, basically, and then just keep everything as it is. Um, so no, e erecting these straw men um, to, to then say, okay, this is the reason why we shouldn't engage any sort of change. Uh, right. Because if we give a little, then language is going to disappear somehow. <laughs> That's or the things that we normally do when we're languaging, we're not going to do it anymore, such as, you know, make meaning. Uh, that's that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it, 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 it's not true that the, you know, people in class are going to all of a sudden stop differentiating between times or stop observing, you know, basic ideas of structures and syntax, you know, be, just because you allow them um, uh, to language in the way that they human beings normally language, right? Which mm -hmm. isn't in these sort of contained silos of expression where you speak as if somehow everything that you have in your linguistic repertoire doesn't touch each other, right? And, and, and doesn't speak to each other, doesn't relate to each other in any way, right? So what I believe is um, functioning in, in all of this is what um, Guadalupe Valdez has uh, written about for decades and uh, this monolingual bias in yeah. the, way, the way that we conceptualize language and in the way that we police purism in language, right? So it's a monolingual bias. It's an ideology um, of language as just being these separate things, right? These separate structures that can function independent of each other. And people can speak as though, you know, the, the forms of expressions don't relate somehow to one another. Or you can speak as though, um, and sound as though you don't function in other languages, right? Which is this notion of a monolingual, um, that you can speak in like a pure monolingual native, which is saying that you don't work in any other languages, you don't deal with any other languages, right? And that's the expectation that's brought upon students and students who actually, or you know, participants in our programs, you, you name them, who function very normally, right? In plurilingual ways and yeah. acknowledging the fact that they move in different worlds and do different things um, are, are marginalized, right? Because they're not speaking like a monolingual 
native, mm -hmm. right? And note that not all monolingual natives are considered the standard of speech, mm -hmm. right? So not only are they expected to speak like a monolingual native, they're expected to speak like a white elite monolingual native, you know, who comes from specific traditions of expression. And um, so this is all wrapped up in layers of social issues right. that for us to um, effectively address, we need to first of all identify what's going on here, right? First of all, there is no way that you can get somebody to function uh, and speak and express as if they don't have contact uh, with you know, other languages, or they don't function in plurilingual ways, or they don't translanguage, right? right. Um, and once we get um, our leadership, or, you know, the arbiters of what's right and wrong among us, to understand <laughs> that, you know, this, this imposition is not, not even, not just linguistically flawed, it, it, it's downright impossible, right? Um, we can get them to see that what they're trying to do, right, in addition to it not really being how people normally do language, is elitist, uh, in many ways racist, and it contributes to harm and marginalization and imposition of undue stigma um, against people who not just are speaking what's considered the wrong type of, you know, Spanish, for example, they're also speaking in impure, contaminated ways because it's obvious that they also, you know, deal with English <laughs> and uh, among others, right? Um, so how do we work with that in practical ways, right? For example, what advice do we give um, teachers, right? Uh, the first advice that we would give teachers is to be a little bit more critical in their understanding of languaging, right? And their understanding of what we do when we're languaging, right? So, uh, and this might even run contrary to the main proposition of world language classrooms, which for a long time has been to educate in a monolingual standard, right? Or to, you know, to, to establish some sort of a, a, a language of a speaker population and then um, teach in, uh, how to function in that as if that population is sort of insular and it would never have any kind of contact with others, right? Yeah. Or ever function in plurilingual ways. So like the fundamental work of the world language classroom or the, the reason of existence of the world language classroom has to be re-examined, right? Because our marching orders mm. are, I would say flawed, right? Mm. Because monolingual immersion um, that we try to impose in uh, world language classrooms um, for legitimate reasons of practice and production, et cetera, um, don't even necessarily exist in this, like, the real world, uh, the real world right? <laughs> or in those target language speaking populations that we're trying right. to emulate, for example. Right. So there's really not going to be, let's say, a Spanish speaking community that you're going to go to and you will be exclusively and like, you know, in every single way inundated by just Spanish. Right. That, that, that that's not how the world lives right now. Um, and so I understand what we're trying to do in the classroom, mm -hmm. um, but what we're doing in the classroom is not really 100% effective and it's uh, extremely uh, harmful um, in many ways, uh, especially when we're enacting linguistic oppression. Um, so I would give the advice of, can we challenge this monolingual immersion um, that we're trying to impose that comes with it all kinds of unfair, you know, unjust uh, and linguistically inappropriate policing? Um, that's the first. And the way I would suggest with that is this notion of, you know, strategic translanguaging, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, translanguaging being what 
human beings typically do, which is employing and engaging all aspects of their linguistic repertoire, you know, in meaning making. So not tie students' hands behind their back, for example, and say, okay, you're going to function as if you are only dealing with Spanish mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. it. Um, and so strategic translanguaging would be encouraging um, the, the way people normally express in right. order to language and then strategically figuring out, okay, what are your needs right now? Uh, are we trying to write? Are we trying to you know, produce in, in other ways, in oral ways, for example? Are we trying to engage and, you know, and, and listen for, you know, what exactly are we working towards, right? Uh, for particular activities. And what are we going to need from each of our you know, abilities and repertoires and toolkits to be able to achieve all of this? Um, and we'll see that when, first of all, this is already happening because teachers aren't able to do this uh, quote unquote pure monolingual <laughs> immersion. <laughs> and students are certainly not functioning that way, right? So right. it's happening already that there's all kinds of plurilingualism going on in the classroom, mm -hmm. but then people are being policed and shamed and you know, people are feeling guilty and incapable and et cetera. So if we were to just take out the emotional load that comes with feeling as though this immersion has to exist, right? I think that uh, with the understanding that of course, there's going to be high levels of you know interaction and practice in some sort of a target language that is going to be necessary for growth and development in that language. Um, welcoming what people do to get to where they need to get to is, um, I believe, a much healthier uh, prospect than what we're doing right now. Definitely. And no, thank you very much for those wise words that you have spoken. Uh, like your words are in line for to what I have always said, you know, to colleagues and to my teachers, et cetera, the idea of languaging and meaning making, it's about recognizing and understanding. And I always talk about this idea of embracing. Let's embrace all the languages that we all talk and we can learn from each other. So yes, it's hangar, but you can also say hangout. You can also say mm -hmm. pasar el rato. And you, mister, how do you say in Arabic? And how do you say in Turkish? And how do you say in ma, you know, like in our classrooms in North America and the United States and Canada, our classrooms are multilingual. Why don't we take the opportunity and learn a little bit more about who they are? And I, I envision a future and I hope not to distance in which we, instead of having the foreign language classroom of Italian, French, German, whatever, mm -hmm. it's just, we're going to have a classroom. It's already happening in Europe, a few friends who have been teaching in, in both Portugal and France and uh, Switzerland, they have this classroom in which they learn languages. And then today they learn, they, they read something in Italian and the next day they read something in Spanish and then a little video in German and so on and so forth. And then it's about themes, you know, and then they, they use different languages to make meaning and then they can say in French, in English. Now, you you know, it's, it's, I have seen them a few times and I was like, it is possible and I wonder if in North America, the United States and Canada, is there a, is there a way to create this the strategic translanguaging that you mentioned? Let's be strategic about what we do because it's already happening in the streets of New York, Los Angeles, you know, mm -hmm. Texas, you know, you name it, Toronto. Montreal. It's already happening in yeah. our classrooms, right? right? You know, I came up in you know in language classrooms, both you know as a student and also as a teacher. So even though it was expected for me to produce language sounding as if I didn't speak any others, right? That the way that I got to where I got in that stage of production was by using every language I needed. Exactly. And I knew already in order to, you know, figure out what I'm gonna need in the particular, you know, code, if you will, that, that I'm working with. However, I was expected or the, the standard was that I would speak 
flawlessly. And flawlessly means sounding like a monolingual native. Correct. correct. <laughs> so sounding like you don't have any other language. You don't have which an is accent. Actually, you don't have an accent or anything you like that. Perfect right? grammar, middle that, Midwest not grammar. Not having an accent is yeah. is impossible. We all have accents. We there is no accents. such thing. You don't have an accent means you sound like me. That, yeah. That's really what we're saying is you right. have my accent. Yeah. Um, so uh, the what you're actually, uh, when, what we say when we say world languages um, is, uh, I, I definitely like that idea of, you know, a plurilingual classroom, right? The classroom is literally the world and we're going to work in all these named languages. Um, but uh, the, the term world languages, at least in the United States, is sort of a departure from this notion of foreign language, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, Spanish, for example, has been uh, spoken about in terms of it being a foreign language. Right. And Spanish is not foreign to the United States. Correct. Spanish has actually existed in what is considered the United States before the United States existed. Exactly. Um, so, um, it's definitely, you know, and the indigenous languages that we have on these lands, you know, they're not foreign, you know, either. Um, uh, so um, what also we're proposing, right, um, which is actually quite threatening to the status quo, is disciplinary disruption. Right. Because right now we have siloed languages right. as disciplines, right? Right as academic subjects. So when you're studying language, language itself is sort of the end goal, right? As opposed to your languaging uh, in order to learn a skill or to actually become proficient in some other uh, discipline or subject, right? Um, so, uh, you know, our traditions in the language classroom come from the fact that the language classroom uh, or formal study of language has been typically an elite space, right? Because it's been typically the space of people of leisure who have the time and the space to consider literatures and mm -hmm. uh, the, the cultural artifacts um, of uh, uh, other societies and other communities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so language learning or language teaching or the study of language as a discipline, the way that it's been conceptualized so far and the way that the majority of academic departments work with it is that it itself is uh, a study and it's focal point is the cultural production of uh, the speakers of that particular language and, uh, you know, in literature, film, etc. Um, so when you do something like, say, why should language itself be a discipline? Why can't we be, you know, working in different world languages as we're studying, you know, nursing <laughs> or yep. business yep. or you, you know your journalism right yep. um so especially with regard to the fact that uh in the united states language learning or language study or the formal academic study of language is an existential threat right now mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. under existential threat um so we're losing language departments by the hundreds or, you know, as the years go by, because more and more how we've conceptualized language study as being this, you know, rarefied elite <laughs> undertaking, uh, you know, where you sit and read fancy tomes <laughs> written by dead old white men, usually. Um, <laughs> In every right, culture, right, right. That, that's the one standard we have across languages, <laughs> or at least the Latin languages, is you know, or the the uh, Germanic ones uh, that we're reading. Dead old white men. Um, so, and I don't know. People have moved on. <laughs> people have other concerns besides this, and our departments refuse to change. Uh, so the disciplinary threat we're facing right now is the existence of the study of language in the way that we've so far conceptualized it, um, which gives yet another reason for people to stop this, this 
this madness of trying to like erect these strict borders and 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 police these boundaries you know that all have to do with i we're going to replicate exactly the way languaging is done in the books and the cultural artifacts of dead white men and i quit the nonsense you know we're not going to exist in a few years mm -hmm. if we don't do more relevant things um so i think that uh what people are kind of I don't know, what's it called? Bare knuckle fighting and, you know, really holding on to. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Is it, dying, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so when we reconceptualize languaging and reconceptualize what we do in spaces um, of, you know, linguistic exploration and study, we also have to reconceptualize what language study means. And I think it should go in the direction of our languages being the medium of instruction um, for uh, access to the occupations, communities, interests that the students are coming with and um, that are relevant to them and that they're more interested in and admit that they're not as interested in, you know, the literature <laughs> um, as we uh, would like to believe and people are desperate to hold on to. Um, so language classes to me should be journalism classes, nursing classes, engineering classes, education classes, um, uh, you know, uh, sociology classes, history classes, you name it. And there are even some that want to destroy the whole disciplinary silos of subjects and, you know, in academic subjects in right. general. And I'm like, okay, burn the whole thing down if you want. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you want to sort of meet in the middle, right, right and right. say, okay, let's all be doing this language thing in the way um, that certain communities, um, I recall, uh, for example, in Europe are doing it, um, this notion of CLIL, right, the mm -hmm. content and mm -hmm. language integrated um, mm -hmm. learning, yeah. um, so that the students are going to a biology class, for example, and they're trying to figure out sciences, and they're doing it in English. And so this is where you're, you know, the policing is not as strict because the English mm -hmm. is not the end goal. The mm -hmm. end goal is the, the scientific content. understanding, yeah. the content, right? So people are languaging as they are that, you know, it's a plurilingual environment. Uh, it's an environment that, you know, there's deep meaning making that's happening because um, there's actually multiple struggles that you're engaged in, you know, the content learning and the linguistic learning. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually quite profound and stable, sustainable learning that's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and people are not oppressed and harmed in this whole maintenance of you have to, you know, adhere to the rigid structures that essentially imitate the way some elite white people talk and write. I totally agree with you with, with what you have just said. You know, I believe our job as teacher, educators, researchers, you name it, is to take down those rigid structures and let's bend them, twist them, twist these boundaries, you know. And the example that you get about CLIL is a very perfect example because I saw um, a few classes in which you, you mentioned the idea that it's not about the language, but it's about the context of the scientific concepts. And in this class, the students were learning about how the plants are growing, you know, they from, from, from seed and then the stem and then the flower, all of those sorts of things. And the students in the class, imagine, this one student in Japanese, he found information in Japanese, the other one in Turkish, the other one in Spanish, the other one in Chinese, videos, literature, etc. And they, they read in their own languages. They came back to the class. They even presented literature in their languages, but whatever they presented, it was in English, but the literature was in Japanese, etc. I said, by we, you know, 
twisting and bending these boundaries, we are allowing our students or we're providing the space for that linguistic exploration that you mentioned that I really liked it because it's, it's that. Why don't we send our students on that linguistic exploration? Let's see what you find out today. What did you learn from your peers today? Any piece of languages, any, anything different that from, from Turkish people, from Chinese people, from Japanese people? What did you learn today that is not your own silo, white, elitist dude up there in the air, right? So that's what I love it. Just to wrap up that part that you beautifully said, the idea of access and interest people into this access of linguistic exploration. Anya, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Muchísimas gracias por el tiempo hoy. I really appreciate the work that you do. And I don't know if you have any last minute comments that you want to share with our audience before we wrap up. No, I want to thank you too. <laughs> Muchísimas gracias a ti también. You know, I'm very uh, excited to be part of this uh, dialogue uh, with the field more broadly. Right. Um, and my final words and thoughts is, you know, we are not here to disband. We are here to expand. <laughs> and so uh, please don't feel threatened that we're bringing down <laughs> what you've so painstakingly erected. Um, uh, we're all uh, zealous uh, about the, the survival of what it is that we all do. Um, which entails evolution. And uh, I believe that uh, we're all working for that. And hopefully we're trying to do it in, in just ways and um, in ways that um, don't entail the kind of harm that is currently being you know, wrought upon uh, a lot of participants in our program. Definitely, I like the word that you mentioned, the idea of stretching, elongating, like, oh, let's just feel it a little bit. Let's do some yoga with all of these things <laughs> instead of breaking down and tearing down and tearing down. I mean, yes, of course, but we can do it in a, in a different manner, right? Definitely. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is Yacid Ortega, Chasing Encounters. Have a good rest of the week, everybody.